Hi everyone, welcome to Crime Science. In this podcast, we aim to explore the science of crime and the practical application of the science for loss prevention and asset protection practitioners as well as other professionals. We would like to thank Bosch for making this episode possible. Use Bosch Camera's onboard intelligent video analytics to quickly locate important recorded incidents or events. Bosch's forensic search saves you time and money by searching through hours or days of video within minutes to find and collect video evidence. Learn more about intelligent video analytics from Bosch in Zones 1-4 through of LPRC's Zones of Influence by visiting Bosch online at BoschSecurity.com. Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Crime Science Podcast. This is the latest in our series of weekly updates. Uh, today, I'm excited uh, not only to be joined by uh, our usual cast of characters, Tom Meehan uh, and Tony D'Onofrio and our producer, Kevin Tran, but also Brian Tuscan um, of Microsoft. So uh, we're going to all spend a few minutes about what we see going on, uh, what we're trying to do about it um, now and uh, to be even more prepared in the future. Uh, I'll start off again with a little bit of an update on just perusing what's going on with uh, COVID-19. Um, again, there's, uh, we know that the virus seems unusual to, in a lot of ways, in the way it presents or doesn't present in everybody that thinks they've had it or there's some test that, that looks like they have had it. Um, there's new research out, too, comparing sort of the idea of long haulers, those that, of us that have had the disease or um, are still experiencing sort of long-term effects, negative effects, um, but then comparing those to uh, influenza or different uh, seasonal flu, that there are uh, similarly long haulers as well. And so the medical professional is trying to sort out, uh, is this more prevalent, the long haul concept? What are the differences and, and uh, what seem to be the causal cascade here that's resulting in that? And then, of course, even more critically, are there things that can be done early uh, as well as later to uh, reduce the likelihood and reduce the severity? Um Testing, we see now uh, at least two major research universities that are uh, getting ready to come out or in early phases anyway of testing of breathalyzer-based testing. Um, This has, of course, been going on for a while uh, in the last uh, recent years for other respiratory viruses or illnesses and diabetes detection and and even certain cancer detection. So the idea of uh, completely non-invasive very rapid test uh, is a possibility as far as being on the horizon. And we've seen now with saliva testing and even here at the University of Florida where um, the the nasal throat swab uh, is still going on, um, not really the blood testing so much uh, with students and faculty and others, um, but uh, moving more toward a saliva. And even now there's um, the possibility or maybe even the probability that there'll be an app based to help uh, recognize and diagnose. So stay tuned on as apps and other concepts play a role in testing. Um, prevention, again, more and more research coming to the fore around masking, what, how many layers, what material, um, how snug, and things like that as far as reducing um, the output of uh, from viremic, of those of us that are viremic, or in other words, shedding the, the uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus. Um, and then, of course, reducing on the other end uh, the amount that we onboard, the load that we take on, which seems to still more research indicating the more the dose, the higher the dose of uh, virus we take on board, um, the more likely we're to get disease. And then, of course, even <clears throat> more likely the disease to be serious. Um, so with both parties wearing 
snugly fit, um, adequate screening type masks, then that uh, seems to be critical. And again, uh, that we know that the, the fomites on, on the surface transference seems to be part of the equation, but not as critical as droplet borne, and then even now possibly aerialized um, transmission. So the mass seems to be in play and uh, may well be, according to a lot of experts, um, through this time next year, um, with or without a, one or more very efficacious and safe um, vaccines that are available. Uh, we know also on the vaccine front, still more research and uh, I don't know if it's debate, but certainly discussion around um, the strategy to deploy one or more of the vaccines once they are found, or at least the, all the data show that they're safe and, and efficacious, um, are that those that are most exposed, again, healthcare workers, the, um, and uh, front-facing, if you will, uh, essential workers, um, then possibly now, do we go to the most vulnerable? Do we go to those that are the highest spreaders that are the most transmissible? Um, and this discussion is coming up, too, with, again, more and more um, discussion around challenge studies, this one day sooner group. Um, there are over 35,000, maybe even a lot more people now signed up to participate in the informed consent challenge trials. And that's where uh, uh, people are exposed to the virus um, <clears throat> and then see what the response is to those that have been vaccinated versus those that have got a placebo. Um, and you can imagine, are there uh, ethical and, and equitable questions around that. Well, sure, there are. Um, there's no rescue treatment available that's known right this minute. Um, and so do we do something where there's not a rescue treatment? Um, others saying, well, we would use the very the most healthy, those that have gone through screening, um, that are the least likely to have uh, disease or uh, at least serious disease, uh, COVID-19. Um, and then, but, uh, the, well, wait, don't, won't, we want to vaccinate the vulnerable uh, first. And then others know, again, it's we want to vaccinate those that are the most mobile and most likely to transmit the disease. That's how you can generate some level of herd immunity. So we'll leave that to the experts there. Um, you know, sort of the, on the therapy front, now you see in two, and I think it's up to four different sources that were separate and distinct that they're looking at going upstream from this cytokine storm that's creating some of the more serious disease out there uh, and looking at the Brady-Kinnon pathways that are out there. So. Um, and this is where they generate inflammation. They can be useful and are useful. That's why we've got them. But also maybe that's what's creating uh, the widespread systemic uh, negative response to the disease as well as um, uh, the, some of the long hauler situations. And so um, the second most powerful computer in the world was used to model as one of the sources here. Um, so stay tuned. Uh, on some therapies because there are evidently several uh, existing therapies uh, that have been found safe and effective in multiple trials and have been in use. So um, that looks interesting. The TB vaccine that first came on in the early 1900s, um, there are different uh, research groups looking at that. That's been used before for beyond tuberculosis and to other respiratory diseases. Um, there's some evidently some results that uh, some of the researchers are pretty excited about. Uh, blood thinners here at the University of Florida, they're working on that uh, angle, as well as uh, this com combination or polytreatment therapy where they're looking at three um, different types of uh, medications together. Right now, we're looking at about a, um, just about 190 um, antivirals that are in uh, all types of levels of testing, 350 plus other treatments that are in effect, 450 of these 
are in pre are preclinical compounds. They've not yet been used in humans, but almost 300 are now in uh, clinical evaluation. Uh, so we're looking at just about 30 in phase one human trials, uh, closing in on 20 in phase two human trials, and now nine, uh, possibly soon to be 10 in phase three trials. And these are all separate vaccines in this case, um, in addition to the uh, uh, over 400 um, therapy type drugs and medications. Um, so I think that's uh, kind of where we are there. Um, we see up and down all throughout the United States and the world. Um, it is a virus that's highly transmissible. And when humans get together and uh, their air is moving, <laughs> their breath is moving or other going to have spread. So what are ways we can uh, reduce that without uh, destroying people's livelihoods and, and uh, creating so, uh, real social distancing instead of just physical distancing. So um, moving on to the LPRC, um, this has been brought up by Tom and uh, myself and others, and even Tony, who's helping us facilitate some of the SOC lab um, fusion center concept. Um, and we're going to uh, hear from uh, Brian, who's an absolute um, expert um, on the topic. Um, but our team, in fact, today we had another call and we've been working away on uh, pulling together the Fusion Center using some initial cha uh, channels right now until we can do something toward the end of the year, uh, but particularly with some of the court rulings that are likely to come down, uh, possible trigger events. The Supreme Court situation, uh, is that a possible trigger event? The election itself, pre, during, and post, of course, um, as I mentioned before, we're putting together um, a working call on that uh, for the LPRC members to go through that. Um, we've got our one of our, actually our lead scientists here at the University of Florida from FIX, the Florida, um, the our uh, really our cybersecurity team here. Uh, so he and I actually had a call to start to plan that. We got a call um, tomorrow as well for the whole group to go through uh, possible election scenarios, what that might look like to trigger who, what, when, where, why, and how, and then implications for um, digital as well as physical infrastructure, but most importantly, people protection, uh, just to be prepared. And uh, again, we don't want to sound overly dramatic, but this is 2020. So um, strategy at coming up next week, we've got a dry run today. Strategy at again is uh, around 40 plus um, uh, of the vice presidents of asset protection and loss prevention for major retail chains. <clears throat> coming together for two hours next week uh, on September 29th from 1 to 3 p.m. Uh, it's an amazing group of the most senior APLP leaders um, in the United States and elsewhere. Um, a nice curated um, situation or uh, session here put together by John Voitella, um, the longtime vice president for Office Depot, Office Max. Um, and uh, uh, the rest of the team. Uh, Impact 2020 coming up on October 6th through 7th. Record, um, I think 750, maybe 800 people already enrolled. We typically have 400, just a little over 400. So we're excited. They have been recording right and left. I'm gonna be leaving here in a little bit to go to the labs to record a little bit more safely um, and so on. So the working groups are all still in full force, uh, multiple research projects underway. Um, the uh, Dell Technologies NVIDIA Edge server should be here this week um, so that we'll start to get that in action for doing some really interesting um, 
AI computer vision training and inferencing testing here, working with three different engineering student teams from ISE and UXD uh, engineers here at UF, um, as well as others on real world. Um, the Safer Places Lab is coming together where we're putting together this entire ecosystem. Our labs that simulate different environments, including a SOC, um, the building itself, the loading dock, the parking lot, the surrounding area, the interface again with the cityscape, uh, residential, commercial, uh, multi and, and single family dwellings uh, with the city of Gainesville, uh, how do we incorporate all the sensors and smart lighting and everything to, for, to provide a better, safer experience for everybody. Um, so all of these projects underway on top of a lot of product protection, ORC research, supply chain protection. So with no further ado, uh, let me go over to uh, my friend and colleague, Tom Meehan. Uh, Tom, if you could kind of enlighten us a little bit on what's going on in the world of fraud and, and violence. Yeah, so I'll, I'll be rather brief today because I want to make sure that uh, our guest has uh, ample time to speak. But wanted to just kind of you mentioned the SOC and not to be repetitive, but we are working on that project. And one of the kind of current events in, in today's world is that uh, there's an expected grand jury verdict, uh, or grand jury ruling coming for Breonna Taylor. So there has been notifications through most major police departments to be prepared for some level of civil disruption. So. Uh, one of those things that we're working at the LPRC to identify how could we disseminate that information? How do we come through? There are some cities who actually declared state of emergency. Louisville has is, is outwardly said that because they're expecting disruption regardless of what the outcome is. Um, this reporting, you know, from my experience, we should, you know, you don't want to really draw a conclusion because the notification is coming out. But pretty much everybody that's involved in the SOC Lab concept has text called and said, hey, what are we hearing? So just another one of those current events and unfortunately in today's day and age there's a lot of them right now in 2020 but something to keep on the back burner and really think about real real briefly just a kind of a continued trend to talk about payments and some of the risks with that there was a really interesting forester um study that was released specific around the eu uh, and COVID 19 and digital payments and one of the things that was covered is that one in five uh, folks used a, a digital payment method in the early stages. And what was interesting is Forrester really talked about that uh, the changing, the, you know, the way people use payment uh, payments in the EU. Okay. And so what's really interesting about the Forrester article is that the, the permanent change in payment trends is what they're uh, predicting in the EU. Uh, as we all know that, you know, the EU and the U.S. trends sometimes uh, run in parallel. We're seeing similar spikes in usage um, but it was interesting to note this particular article didn't talk so much about the risk, but we continue to talk about the risk of, and I know Tony talks about this all the time, the really the acceleration of the digital transformation and the challenge with retailers having to move virtually the speed of light sometimes overnight and implement changes and still be able to manage risk. So more to come on that. I think it's a, it's a pertinent thing to keep in mind is as our customers' behaviors continue to change um, throughout dealing with COVID-19, how do we stay relevant as retailers and how do we protect ourselves and our customers at the same time without dis uh, disrupting the customer experience? And then I'll kind of leave with uh, Security InfraWatch had a really interesting uh, article on the five trends then uh, retail risk. And we talk about them all the time uh, in the podcast in different ways, but I think it's important that they started off with organized retail theft and fraud and the concern of that growing. I recently um, uh, spoke with a couple of folks on this at a, at a conference and you know the the 
the the perception is that because of COVID, it'll increase, but the reality is here it has been increasing. They also talked about the need for response from law enforcement for retailers and how in some markets there just isn't any response, both from uh, you know policy change, uh, bail reform, COVID nineteen, and, and it, it becomes somewhat of a recipe to, for disaster um, for law enforcement and retail conjunction. And it isn't a one-sided thing here. It's, it's half of its resource gain, half of its government piece. So this continues to be a challenge. Uh, also, it, this, the article highlighted the physical security capital needs and the human resources needs. So where the focal point today in retail has really been getting folks back to the store and focused on kind of moving to a zero trust environment, heavy infrastructure side that the, the Unfortunately, the the security, some of the physical security things fall to the wayside, um, just out of sheer sheer need to keep running through. And actually, uh, this this article actually quotes the Loss Prevention Research Council, which I thought was interesting to talk about that and, and cites kind of some of the things that we talk about often. And then you know, it, talking about the overarching impact on COVID nineteen, I know we always talk about that on this call, and we, this isn't really about COVID nineteen, but really the impact and how challenging it is because um, the target's moving right. Where the guidance is changing, uh, each each market has different implications and the continued risk for there. Um, and it, it it rounds the article out with the the tension and the anger and the desperation. Um, of the criminal element of how this changes, talks about mask enforcement and all of those things. So um, continuing kind of the path that we've been taking all along is that these these challenges don't, you know, there's there is a light at the end of the tunnel, of course, but they really seem like they'll they'll be here for some time. So we'll continue to keep people updated. We'll continue to run, you know, through it. Um, I know today as we're taping live, the NRF has their NF Protect virtual conference and there's a lot of conversation about the things we're talking about. And I'm sure um, on next week's call, we'll cover some of those things. But without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Tony. Thank you very much, uh, Tom. And it's really my great pleasure to introduce our special guest, uh, Brian Tuscan, who is the Senior Director and Chief Security Officer from Microsoft. Uh, Brian has 30 plus years in law enforcement and private sector uh, communities. Brian's team is responsible for physical security for all of Microsoft's global corporate footprint. As a public servant, Brian spent over 12 years in law enforcement with the city of Redmond Police and the Honolulu Police Department. Brian was named one of the most influential people in security in 2017. He founded Cup Corporate, which helps law enforcement professionals plan their transition to the private sector. Brian has a criminal justice degree from Wayland University and is a graduate of the University of Washington and received an executive leadership certificate from Georgetown University. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Brian. Well, thank you, Tony, and thank you for having me on your podcast. Well, welcome. I, I'm going to jump in right to the first question that I have for you. I would like to, for our audience, to understand how the virtualization of your security operations has benefited your team and Microsoft during the pandemic. Well, that's a great question, and I heard a lot about in the uh, loss prevention, uh, physical security world, uh, asset protection. It's important to have 
uh, a SOC, you know, security operations center and, and a strategy behind it. So specific to our environment, because we, we did have a small retail footprint, but it's, it's a campus environment. It's very open and the public uh, has access to a lot of our property. So I would say there's, there's a lot of similarities to what you would find uh, in, in a, a retail environment. So I think it's uh, relevant of what I'm going to talk about. So when I first came over to the Microsoft Corporation, uh, we had about 15 different SOCs where we uh, were called them life safety control centers. They were not integrated, they were standalone, uh, good intention, um, leadership and management from, from uh, technology, but it was just a hodgepodge of tech, no matter where it sat. Uh, and this, this was around the globe. And from my discussions with people in your industry, I hear there are a lot of similarities uh, to that challenge where you will have these standalone socks where the, the lack of integration really makes it a challenge. And so as I heard Tom talking about uh, budget restraints, especially where it, it hits the physical security side, uh, we, we had the same challenges. So the first thing we came up with was a master plan. You're gonna have to have a master plan to determine what, what's the future gonna look like. And so we put together a, a zero-based study on our 15 socks, came back with a master plan where we would reduce the socks to three global centers, but the requirement was interoperability. So if one went offline, the other could take over. And it was, it was really for operational load sharing. Now to get there, it took quite a, a, a long time and, and the resourcing to get it, but we were able to build three operation centers to manage our portfolio uh, throughout the globe. Now, the virtualization piece, as the cloud became more prevalent, we determined that with a cloud strategy, we, we could reduce our three SLCs to actually two. So we closed about five years ago our London-based operation center and just kept our core fusion VSOC Virtual Security Operation Center in Redmond, Washington at our main campus that's just outside of Seattle. And then our secondary operation center, which is in Hyderabad, India. And the core to running that operations was the technology. And I want to reiterate the, the power of technology, but also to keep it simple. Uh, there are times where you have good intention people that will go to a conference and buy the latest and greatest thing. The problem with that is if it's not aligned or integrated, it, it may be a problem. And so our integration usually um, relies on one platform, uh, technology platform. And obviously being at Microsoft, you know what platform that is. Uh, the cloud and, and the uh, Technologies, a third, third party software solutions that fit on top of that platform so it's seamless. And I'm not going to go through the myriad of technologies that we use, but just fast forward to uh, COVID 19, where we did not lose um, any continuity of our business because we had years and years of planning and training for something just like this happen. And a great example for that continuity, uh, uh, business continuity uh, planning was our Hyderabad India VSOC was shut down because the government just shut, shut down the, the entire uh, country. But in Hyderabad, our employees could not even get to work. But we had go bags uh, when they were 
basically sent home or evacuated uh, to to stay at home because of uh, the COVID restrictions. The go bags had laptops. Uh, it had uh, uh, the particular radios that had radio over IP. And as long as they had a good internet connection, which they did, they were able to maintain uh, operational uh, continuity for the VSOC 100% virtualized. And the VSOC in Redmond, Washington, we had a skeleton crew, uh, about two people, and the rest were working remotely. And we maintained uh, all of the GDPR requirements uh, and, and uh, UL certifications for the lack of uh, staff physically on, on the uh, location because we had the, the planning and training in place. What that allowed us to do was to seamlessly operate a huge portfolio. Microsoft, we operate in over 190 countries. Physically, we have about 125 physical locations where we operate around the globe. And we were able to maintain uh, security at all sites with a very limited uh, presence of security with the exception of physical security. Obviously, you need uh, physical security on site. But the technology behind uh, the, the was the magic that allowed us to seamlessly communicate, to uh, talk to each other, to engage, uh, to respond, uh, e even to having technology to work with law enforcement for uh, deployment. As, as you well know, in, in COVID, as many people are just working from home, you have uh, higher instances of trespassing and burglaries and so on and so forth. So we, we still needed to maintain that presence. And so uh, what I think the future is as cloud and technology expands is having SOC as a service through third parties. So we're currently looking at outsourcing a lot of the, the work that we do in-house in to third parties that just do this as a business. And it's akin to years ago when uh, people would have internal IT uh, departments where now they're just have a utility type service where they're farming off all of the, the IT infrastructure to cloud providers. And we're, we're looking at the same model for SOCs. That's uh, excellent, Brian, and actually very, very relevant to all this COVID-19 and what we're hearing about it uh, right now in terms of being prepared. And it's interesting in the journey that you took. But I, I do want to jump to a second question, which I think is also relevant to this audience. It really inspired me in reading your, your biography. And actually, what inspired you to do to create Cup to Corporate? And what are the key lessons learned from the transitions that you've observed? Well, I started blogging for Cop to Corporate because I was being inundated with requests through email or through LinkedIn from current law enforcement professionals, federal, state, local, municipal, all over the, the country and, and the world asking for advice. And it got to the point where I, I just did not have the time to respond to everyone. So I decided to create a blog with certain themes that kept on popping up on questions, such as, should I retire at mid-career? Um, or, you know, I had this particular issue and, and, and how to write a resume, so on and so forth. So on my blog, cop2corporate.com, I have all these vignettes and examples of uh, 
stories that I've had over the years. And what that allowed me to do is reach a very large audience because I don't have to interact and tell the same story over and over. It's it's just out there uh, for free for anyone that, that can opine on it and, and help other law enforcement professionals plan the transition. As you well know, with the uh, current climate, uh, I've been receiving many uh, requests uh, for guidance on leaving law enforcement and coming into the private sector. And I would say the the key for me when I, when I give any guidance to anyone is to be very thoughtful on why they want to leave and the reasons behind it. And it can't just be an emotional decision, although it's very emotional, but really be thoughtful on why they want, want to leave and transition because just jumping ship from the public sector to the private sector, it, it's not as easy as some people think it is. So they have to be very thoughtful on it. And so I really did it as a, uh, a service for uh, law enforcement professionals that have worked, either retired or just decided it's time for them to leave. So they can have a thoughtful process and not just jump into a, a knee-jerk reaction because they're emotional or just quit quit the force and then jump into a job that they, they're unhappy with. And that's really the main reason I did it. Well, thank you, Ryan. I really, really appreciated both your, your insights on the virtualizations of operation centers and also the cop to corporate. That is indeed an inspiring story. Let me move on and just close with some data from the retail industry that's pertinent to our, what's happening around us. So Amazon announced that they're gonna open 1,000 small warehouses across the US. The move reflects the trend of retailers turning to micro fulfillment center because they now wanna get it to you faster uh, to get you those products faster and much more efficiently. Walmart announced a pilot program with drone startup Zipline. The trial is due to begin next year and could see products being delivered in under an hour within a 50 mile radius of a Walmart store. So that was interesting in terms of how we're trying to speed up and get the interesting uh, products to consumers much, much quicker. And I'm gonna end with a, a story from Retail Brew in terms of Inditex. Inditex is one of the world's largest apparel Retailers had a tough time during the heat of the pandemic and actually had their first loss over, but in their latest quarterly results, they actually returned back to profitability already. So Inditex owns a Zara brand and they have over 7,000 stores in over, on, in over 190 countries. They returned to profitability. Uh, it was driven by a 74% jump in online sales and they're reopening on 98% of the stores. By the end of July, Inditex reduced their stock and trade by 19% by, with the help of the flexible suppliers. But what was really interesting to me was at the beginning of the pandemic, Inditex used advanced technology to funnel clothing from closed stores to e-com, with room to adjust orders and demand shifted in, and they shifted the demand in real time, and they also reduced uh, unsold SKUs. The tech that was not mentioned in the article that actually was driving it is actually RFID. For this audience, Inditex was actually one of the first to deploy a, a reusable 
EIS RFID hard tag, and and now that and now they're working on their next generation of what that inventory management looks like. So it's really interesting to me how, how technology was used in terms of any specifically RFID to optimize inventory management during the pandemic and return the profitability very, very quickly. So I'm with that, I'm gonna turn it over to Reed. All right, thank you so much, Tony, for that update. Brian, for all that you're doing for those that are contemplating or are moving from law enforcement to the private sector. And uh, like you, I've been in both. Um, and so and the, the grass is not always greener on one side or the other. And I, so I really like the idea of, you know, let's be thoughtful about it. Certainly there's emotion and there are reasons, um, but, uh, but the idea of providing vignette scenarios, things that they can use to contemplate and think about and ask about is, it's just fantastic. And then, you know, the insight that you have on the SOC is, uh, is pretty amazing and going from all that to what you really need and then, but, but still contemplating what are ways we can improve, get better. Um, and it doesn't just have to, to live here or be us and so forth. So great insights. Um, and uh, so I want to thank you, Tom, as well, and Kevin Tran. Um, and for everybody, stay safe. Uh, let us know any questions, comments, suggestions, ideas that you might have for Crime Science, a podcast. Um, write us at operations at lpresearch.org. Visit us at lpresearch.org as well. Um, if you have, again, interest in LPRC Impact, um, go to the website, lpresearch.org. I think it's backslash impact and get registered um, and so forth. I do want to do a call and nod out. I, I appreciate Tom doing that. I had my notes to the NRF Protect. That event's going on as we're recording right now, so I'll jump back over and start monitoring that in a few minutes. Um, but a great group. We love working with NRF. We love working with RELA, FMI, and, and other industry organizations and all the great people that work there and all the retailers that, that are involved. Um, so again, on behalf of the LPRC and our team, everybody stay safe. Thanks for listening to the Crime Science Podcast presented by the Loss Prevention Research Council and sponsored by Bosch Security. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can find more crime science episodes and valuable information at lpresearch.org. The content provided in the Crime Science Podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for legal, financial, or other advice. Views expressed by guests of the Crime Science Podcast are those of the authors and do not reflect the opinions or positions of the Loss Prevention Research Council.